Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. Apologies for the delay. Things have been crazy at my job. This month's podcast is a bit different. No interviews, although there will be a couple of pieces of audio from other people. And all Angie. In a way, this whole episode is like an extended version of my Angie Geeks Out segment. If you know me at all, you know I've been a fan of Doctor Who for most of my life. As I wrote in my editorial, looking at Doctor Who Series 9, Breaking Up is Hard to Do, if my memory of my first episode is correct, I first came across the show when I was nine years old. It was Sunday night, way after my bedtime, and I had wandered out to the living room to ask my mom a question. She was watching something on TV, so, being polite, I waited for a pause in the action before I asked my question. The show she was watching was Doctor Who, and the episode was The Ribos Operation, the first in the Key to Time series. I don't think I ever got that question answered. Doctor Who was also the first fandom I entered. I grew up near St. Louis, and during one of the pledge breaks for the PBS channel the show ran on, one of the crew interviewed a member of the St. Louis CIA. That's Celestial Intervention Agency. A fan club that is still around. By this time, I was in high school, and I begged my mom to join the club. And for me to be able to drive the 90 minutes into St. Louis to attend a meeting... I still remember at that first meeting, one of the members named all the companions in order. But as I also wrote in that editorial, my feelings about the show have obviously changed as I grew up. If we were in a relationship, our status would be, it's complicated. While I at first jumped for joy at the announcement of Stephen Moffat becoming showrunner, as the show progressed, and as I also fell held over heels for Sherlock, I started not enjoying certain aspects of the show and his handling of it. I could do a whole editorial on my feelings regarding Moffat, but I'll summarize that I am very glad that he finally stepped down. But when push comes to shove, I still consider myself a fan of the show. Thankfully, this last series was a much-needed shot in the arm, and I loved Companion Bill. And don't get me started with how excited I am about Jodie Whittaker coming on board. So when Gallifrey One announced ticket transfers for this year's convention, I jumped at the chance and managed to get me one. If you're not familiar... Gallifrey One is the world's largest and longest-running annual Doctor Who fan convention, with 2018 being its 29th year. I actually had only started hearing about it back in 2013, during my first podcast interview with Travis Ritchie, Inspector Spacetime himself. He mentioned doing a panel at the con, and it moved onto my radar. However, because the convention is intentionally small, their tickets sell out extremely fast. The tickets for 2019 were announced last weekend and sold out within 48 hours. So in previous years, I was unable to afford it. They also don't offer up press badges, which is usually how I manage to attend conventions. So thankfully in February, I was able to attend the convention for the very first time. And I wanted to share my experience with you, fellow geeks. While technically the convention didn't open until Friday, on Thursday night they had an opening night party. This is where they have an ice cream social, a dance, some get-togethers, and... Basically, where you can kind of go and meet everybody. Since this was my first time, and since I was kind of nervous being, believe it or not, a bit of an introvert, uh, I decided I would go and kind of get my feelings for it. 
Now, I had heard already from several sources about how nuts the convention ribbons are there. If you've attended a convention, you know about convention ribbons. But Gallifrey one is beyond understanding. Tons upon tons. And they strongly encourage you to bring your own for trade. Now, I didn't bring my own because I was still new and I was still kind of getting my feel for it. So I didn't expect anybody to give me any. Everything I had read said it would be for trade only. However, more times than not, when I would mention that I didn't have any ribbons to trade, I would get a, that's okay, here, have some anyway. So I have a scarf-worthy ream of ribbons. Everything from I Survived the Galactic Circus to No Sir, All 13, to Don't You Remember Your Friend Pete, to promoting various stuff, to the Whedon Con, to everything. And it was just, it's fabulous. I am coming back this next year, and so I think I am going to be bringing some geek out ribbons myself. Also at this opening night party, they had a dance where I mostly looked on, saw a few people who I recognized from Twitter, but didn't approach because I felt this wasn't the time or place. But I did get to meet some people and even got to meet a lovely lady with this great coat of buttons that you can see a photo of in the post that accompanies this podcast. But then on to Friday and the rest of the weekend, I figured I'd divide this up into several different areas. I'm going to first talk about the panels, then I'm going to talk a little bit about the cosplay I saw, then talk about some of the merch I saw, talk about the photos and autographs, and then a few other stories here and there. So first, the panels. As with every convention, there was a lot of FOMO, fear of missing out, even while being there. There was a lot of panels that sounded interesting or sounded fascinating, and trying to pick which ones I wanted to go to was difficult at best. But I knew beyond anything that I had to go to the Dr. Puppet panel. If you're not familiar with Dr. Puppet, it's a stop-motion animated web series on YouTube. Created in 2012 by Alyssa Stern, it started with The Eleventh Doctor and is set to be an eight-episode story arc, with some other short films in between, featuring many of the characters from Doctor Who. It is glorious and sweet and wonderful, and I have enjoyed every episode I've seen. This panel, which I live-tweeted, was Stern talking about everything from how she designs her puppets to where she gets some of her ideas. This included her showing off her new Jodie Whittaker puppet. I have photos from the panel available on my website. She mentioned that she didn't actually plan for the series to go very far. She originally only wanted to do one or two, but she became fascinated by the process and so just kept doing them. Stern talked about how she got the idea for the episode that welcomed Capaldi when he was announced back in 2014 called a Dr. Puppet Welcome to the Twelfth Doctor. Since she didn't know yet what kind of Dr. Capaldi was going to be, she was a little leery about chewing too much with his character. So, after researching Capaldi, she found out he was into German Expressionism, and so decided to use that style as the basis for the episode. When designing the puppets, she said that for the Doctors, it's all about the head shape. Capaldi, for instance, is a triangle. This is when she um, unfortunately decapitated Whitaker's puppet. When designing Whitaker's puppet, for the hair she realized she had to do it as not a brunette who went blonde, but a blonde who was added roots. 
Also, with Whitaker's costume, as it's been revealed in the promo photos, Stern realized she had never had to do just the top of a shoe before. I've loved stop-motion animation for most of my life, and I'm a huge fan of the Aardman movies, and so I loved hearing the nitty-gritty behind-the-scenes stuff. Stern is a professional puppeteer, but does Dr. Puppet in her free time just because she's a fan and to keep her skills honed. And it shows. She is so talented. Dr. Puppet will be ending this year, and I'll be sad to see it go. But I'm eager to see what else she may have planned for on the horizon. Speaking of puppets, on the second day, I also attended the Tiny Wimey Puppet Show, run by, believe it or not, one of the people who now run the Paul Mesner Puppets out of Kansas City. Yes, the place I spent 20 years of my life in and one of the theaters I actually covered a lot when I was writing for Casey's Stage. In fact, after I had to approach him and say, I'm with Casey's Stage, and it felt so weird after four years now of running into someone who actually recognized that name. That one was hilarious. I think my favorite part had to be the ad in the middle of Dalexa, a Dalek and Alexa. Another part uh, that I really enjoyed of the Timey Wimey Puppet Show is having Peter Capaldi's doctor and William Hartnell doctor do a version of anything you can do, I can do better. Rhyming Daleks with, of course, bollocks. Then, of course, they followed that up with Weeping Angel, You're the One, to the tune of Rubber Ducky. But they actually had a technically a crossover with Dr. Puppet as she was there also. And they ha- I have a lovely picture of the two different Whitaker puppets, again, on in the photos that are accompanying this post. Along with other panels, I attended two interviews sessions. The first was interview with director Rachel Talalay, which I found fascinating uh, both as someone who is a fan of Doctor Who, obviously, but also as a someone who has expressed interest in the world of directing, both, not necessarily on film, but I have directed on stage, and I've always been kind of curious how different it is directing something on TV and screen. It was also somewhat disheartening, I guess, in a way, to hear how much she still has to fight for every piece of respect she gets just because she's a woman. One of her quotes talked about how, as a woman director, there were quite a few years of people telling you to direct more like a man. She does say that it is getting better, at least in television, in terms of diversity, and but it could get so much better. And finally, her dream jobs for directing... Both Game of Thrones and Star Wars. Disney, get on that Star Wars. I would kill to see her direct. It was a inspiring and infuriating interview, to say the least. Another interview panel I attended was with actress Gemma Redgrave, who played Kate Stewart, the daughter of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. My wife is a huge fan of the character of Kate, and so I knew I had to attend since she wasn't able to come to the conference. One of the reasons I liked the character of Kate Stewart was because I loved the character of the Brigadier. I was so sad that they never managed to get the actor Nicholas Courtney onto the reboot, as he was probably the actor who had worked with the most Doctors. He played Space Security Agent Brett Vian opposite William Hartnell's Doctor in the Daleks' Master Plan, and then managed to work with Hartner as the Brig in The Three Doctors. And while he didn't have a chance to act alongside Colin Baker's Doctor during the run of the show, He 
he managed to appear with him in the charity special Dimensions in Time. Despite the character of the Brigadier being a bit of a blowhard, Courtney managed to infuse a likable quality to him, giving him an unexpected depth. For the reboot, the Brig was referenced by the Tenth Doctor, but only appeared on the Sarah Jane Chronicles. So to give him a legacy of a daughter, also working with Unit, was a bittersweet act for me. Redgrave talked about being cast in the role. She said that when she first started, she was actually mostly unaware of the Doctor Who fandom, which I think in today's day and age is fascinating that you would get cast on something like this and not be aware of how huge it really is. She was quick to figure it out, however. She talked about how within 10 minutes of starting filming in Trafalgar Square for the 50th, fans started showing up. Redgrave also talked about working with Ingrid Oliver, who played Osgood. She said there's a sense of chemistry between the two of them, and they got along very well. She joked about working on the 50th anniversary and how, quote, we weren't supposed to take pictures, Ingrid and I, but we may have snuck in a few. She had some great stories of the filming of the 50th, including Tom Baker being snuck in under a blanket, using Cardiff locations and post-production for St. Paul's Cathedral, and a sweet memory of working with John Hurt. She also had the best description I've heard of Missy as a character. Quote, it's the sweet psychopath. Her first scene was six pages, all technobabble, which, if you are any kind of a sci-fi geek or a fan of people such as LeVar Burton or Will Wheaton or other people in science fiction worlds, they all talk about how the technobabble is one of the worst parts of the job because you're basically just spouting nonsense. It's called technobabble for a reason, after all. She was asked about doing improv on set, and she said, quote, I always assume if left to my own devices, I'll miss something. I found this interesting because I hear so many actors say that being able to play around with the script is part of why they do television. Some of the highlights of the panel was not only Redgrave saying herbal with an H as an American, but also after talking about needing tea and praising the person who brought some on for her, her joking, I'm British, if you didn't know, as to why it was so important for her to have tea. Finally, she stated that she had no idea as to whether her character will be returning to Doctor Who, but that, quote, It'll be a fantastic thing, regardless of whether I'm involved or not. Because I'm such a huge audio nerd, I attended two workshops regarding audio. The first up was the Radiophonic Workshop at 60. Now, the best part about this workshop is the smexy, smexy photos of all of the old equipment they, they used to use, which, yes, some of them did manage to be... I took three, two, one, which, yes, I did take some photos of the photos, and they are in my slideshow. But seeing how archaic some of this equipment was and what they were still managed to do because of that, and also seeing how many women actually were involved at this point, even back in the early days, was an interesting door into the history of the world. One of the best quotes from this panel is, wherever you are, there's music. And talking about how any sound can be turned into music, whether it's tapping on a cup or a bottle or whatnot. Some of the odd things they managed to use for their sound and for their music includes a wine bottle, fire extinguishers, an oscillator. The fact that they used equipment with no presets that meant every sound you made was slightly different than the one before. One of the panelists was very proud to admit that he was has gotten the Wilhelm scream into no less than three public radio shows, which of course that is now a new bucket list item for myself. Ah! One of the panelists said it helped make the monsters real. 
They said, if you want to be inventive, you have to play around with stuff. This, of course, segued into the idea of electronic music and using that in Forbidden Planet. And they said it never got got noticed because Hollywood didn't recognize that kind of music as music. One of the panelists actually did the music for the Sarah Jane Chronicles. And, of course, they have a band. They talk about how they are their own tribute band. And they talked about how Pink Floyd was using a lot of the same techniques they did to make their music. One of the things one of the panelists said is, I don't think that the 80s would have happened without the Radiophonic Workshop because so many musicians note they heard it growing up. The second audio panel I attended was The Making of a Big Finish Audio. Now, I'll admit, I haven't listened to a whole lot of the Big Finish Audio. While I've listened to maybe around 20 or so, most of them have been relegated to the when I invent the 48-hour day list. Doesn't help that their entire catalog is well into the 300s, which, yes, they did actually have two complete sets of CDs of their entire catalog that they offered up for the charity auction. I've always been fascinated by radio plays. I grew up listening to Abbott and Costello radio routines, The Shadow, and others, and my fascination only progressed as I got older. When podcasts first started coming onto the scene, I jumped for joy, especially when I came across things like the Atlanta Radio Theater Company, the Thrilling Adventure Hour, Welcome to Night Vale, and more. I'm continually surprised that when people typically talk about podcasts, it's inevitably the nonfiction ones that get all the attention. There is a ton of great narrative audio being done nowadays, whether it's BBC Radio 4, Direct with Podcasts, or the Big Finish Audio Work. Founded in 1996, Big Finish started releasing audio plays adapted from the Doctor Who New Adventure books from Virgin. They have since then expanded onto other properties such as The Avengers, The Prisoner, Sherlock Holmes, and even some original work. This panel discussed the various aspects of creating a Big Finish audio from the original idea to release. In terms of casting and getting the voice actors, the panel talked about how it's a secret club that everyone in the industry knows about. In fact, The industry is very small, and word gets around in terms of casting. So many actors have mentioned how much they enjoy doing audio because it's just about the acting. They don't have to worry about costumes. They don't have to worry about props. They don't have to worry about 90% of what an actor usually has to deal with when acting. They can just sit there and act. In fact, John Hurt was only intended for one Big Finish audio, but he enjoyed himself so much he ended up doing four before he passed. In terms of the actual writing of the productions, they do have to run stories past the BBC, but the writers have a lot of freedom in what stories they can tell. And if you're interested in writing one, it's okay to be slightly derivative in your pitches, but not all the time. One of the panelists talked about how one writer kept pitching ideas from 70s movies. You have to make sure that dialogue is king and use your silences. And if you're curious, an hour's play is around 90,000 words. For directing, sometimes it's reading the script and realizing there isn't a comma for three lines and figuring out a way to give the actor time to breathe. The directors make sure to establish the first day how all the characters and planets sound for consistent pronunciation across the production. When using the same actors, they work with getting the actor to shift their pitch and then they tweak it even further in post. They do the casting and work with it on the day of the recording. A director's job is to stand in for the audience, they said. They try to read as many actors at the same time, but that's not always possible, and some come with creative ways of reading in for the people who are missing. As for what's on the horizon, there are a lot of plans. When someone asked about the future of the Eighth Doctor and whether there'd be more audio stories with McGann, now that we know how he regenerates, 
Their response was a humorous, well, there's this thing called time travel. They did mention the possibility of doing something in the universe of the spinoff class, which excited me because I felt there was some real potential in that series, and I thought there could be a lot more to be told. You can learn more about Big Finish and even download some items for free on their website, bigfinish.com. Another panel I attended was the Creating Awesome TV for a New Renaissance Era. I'll admit, 90% of the reason this got on my radar was because one of the panelists was Jane Espenson, who I've been a fan of since Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In fact, I used her show Husbands as an example in an article on the rise of web series in my master's thesis. You can read this article on my website. So the fact that I got within what I jokingly refer to as tackling distance of her was one of my geek bucket list items. I also got a chance to talk to her after and told her about her being used in my thesis. However, despite that, most of the really good quotes I live tweeted came from a different panelist, writer Javi Griot Marceau, who's best known for his work on the first two seasons of Lost. And hey, apparently he's a USC alum. Fight on! When it comes to pitching your stories, he said, he talked about, quote, give them you until you is what they want. When the panel talked about fear, he said that the thing about bravery is that it stems from fear. But the best writing advice he gave was, know what you want to say to the world. He also said that there has never been a better time for writers to not be asking what is commercial. One of the other panelists was Derek Hughes, who talked a bit about writing with a partner. He said to never forget you're trying to tell the best story. You don't worry about each other, you just worry about the story. The funniest part was that throughout the panel, they kept making jokes about this mock streaming service called Woomby. In fact, they created a show for it, a crossover between Mindhunter and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think I might pay money to see that. One of the audience members actually found out that the web URL Woomby was available. The panel discussed what theme they tend to stick with, and Espenson, of course, said the, the redemptive power of love. Another of the panelists was Gillian Horvath, who wrote for both Highlander and Forever Night, which might explain why those two shows were so similar in certain ways. Finally, they talked about shows they are currently watching and loving, and Gillian mentioned Slings and Arrows. Poor, poor Jane Espenson had never heard of the show, and while I was right there singing the praises of the show, so hopefully I helped turn her on to it. Which, add in that the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast just did an episode about this show, I've been contemplating doing a review of the show in the same vein as my Looking Back at Leverage one. The panel was enlightening to me as a writer and as someone who liked to cover the entertainment world. You can find Contents May Vary, the home of the Geek Out podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash contentsmayvary. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the handle Angie F. Sutton. Be sure to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. Finally, I have a newsletter. Be sure to sign up for it over at AngieFSutton.com. And now back to my experiences at Gallifrey One. I also attended a couple of meetups during the con. One was the LGBT fan mixer. I admit, I was pretty nervous and feel somewhat on the outskirts of the LGBT community. Add in that, that I felt somewhat on the outskirts of the whole con itself, my anxiety was pretty high. However, I was happy to run into Travis Ritchie, Inspector Spacetime himself. Not surprisingly, he didn't remember me interviewing him back in 2014, but seemed to be a good sport for me bringing it up. We talked about the Untitled web series, as well as some of the other stuff he's been doing lately, and I hope to maybe get him back on the Geek Out podcast with an update. 
I also attended the Whovian Feminism Meetup. Another time when I felt awkward, but that's partly because I am in such awe of the woman behind it. I don't always agree with everything she writes. However, seeing some of the responses she gets on a regular basis, the hate, the bile, the sheer awfulness of humanity, how she's able to keep doing this and not curl up in a ball and give up, I have no idea. I hope to one day get her on here to talk about how she's able to maintain her sanity while still writing about feminism and Doctor Who. At both of these meetups, I ran into one of the best cosplayers I saw all weekend, a dead ringer for Roger Delgado's master, offering mist flowers, of course. And at the Whovian feminism meetup, he showed me his prop tissue compression eliminator, which is basically just a flashlight. You can see an up-close photo of this in my photos. One of the most talked about panels post-event was the Gallifrey Waits No More. Camille Kaduri, Chase Masterson, Dee Sadler, Haley Neubauer, Gemma Redgrave, Jenny Colgan, Jessica Martin, Lindsay Alford, Lisa Bowerman, Rachel Chalele, Rona Munro, Sarah Dollard, Sophie Aldred, and Wendy Padbury talking about the changing landscape of women in the media. And what was originally going to be just a panel about what it's like being a woman in the industry turned into a session-long Me Too movement with stories that broke my heart. From Wendy Padbury talking about having someone touch her inappropriately during an interview to Sophie Aldred talking about someone pulling down her pants hearing story after story after story of women who were in not a position of power in a place where they needed to be polite and they needed to be quiet and having the men take advantage of that was both disheartening as well as brave the Whovian Feminist did a much better write-up of this panel, and I will just link to it in my show notes because I was speechless, and unfortunately I was out of power at the time on my phone and so could not live-tweet it, and it was devastating but wonderful, if that makes sense. And, of course, the closing ceremonies, which had everybody up on stage, including Stephen Moffat. And I'm going to play a little bit of audio here of him talking about working with Timothy Dalton. It's kind of an anecdote from my very, very first day in charge of Doctor Who. My first official day. And it involves the regeneration of David Tennant into Matt Smith. And I haven't told this story before. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> Everybody is very, very emotional, obviously. David Tennant is saying, yeah, great, okay, bring on the kid. Uh, Matt Smith is going, oh my God, what have we said yes to? Julie Gardner is handing me her headphones. And I took the headphones from Julie Gardner and I tried not to bow as I received them. Because it was becoming ridiculous. The only two people, of course, who weren't particularly emotional were Let's be honest, me and Russell, we were fine. We were just thinking, oh, it's a regeneration day. This is happening. Uh, everyone's emotional. How do you do that? You do a crying face, I'll copy it. Um, 
We're standing chatting together, and then the most awesome thing happens, or rather, the most awesome thing did. Some of you have heard this story, but almost no one has heard this story. <laughs> a lot of people are gathering around the set because it's a big day. David Tennant is turning into Matt Smith. It's regeneration day. My God, we're there. We're actually there. Timothy Dalton comes in because he's in the episode. Because he wants to see the new Doctor. He wants to see the regeneration. And he comes over to Russell and me. And we're impressed. We're thinking, this is James Bond. <laughs> um, and I'm not making this up. This is, every word of this is true. He says, you know, it's pretty tough, this kind of thing, you know? And we're going, no, he's not, is he? He's not gonna do that. Giving up a part like this, it's pretty difficult. And I can't look at Russell and Russell can't look at me because we're both vibrating, we think, no, he's gonna tell this story. He's gonna tell this story about leaving that role. He's gonna do it in front of us now. We are going to hear about it on the day that David Tennant turns into Matt Smith. We are actually gonna, on regeneration, change. This is the best thing that's ever happened. I am psychically uh, placing a, a, an exclusion zone around us in case anyone offers anyone tea and interrupts the spell. Because <laughs> we're gonna hear about this on regeneration day. And he's saying, you know, I, I played a part once. Meant a lot to me. And I had to give it up. But good. We know! <laughs> and again, I can't look at Russell and Russell can't look at me. I'm thinking, this is awesome beyond belief. This is an anecdote for the rest of our lives. What's gonna happen? What are you going to say? Don't look at me, Russell. <laughs> I might cry. I think I'll finally find a word to your doctors. <laughs> Yes, it's a long time ago. We know, we know. A long time ago, I was in a play called The Lion in Winter. <laughs> <laughs> and I left it and I went to see the other guy and I was very upset. We're good. Anyway, bye. And we're going. <laughs> You are Timothy Dalton! <laughs> Russell Johnson says he doesn't know his own career. <laughs> One of the things I didn't mention was the masquerade because I wanted to talk about the cosplay. As with any con, the cosplay was phenomenal. And so many Jodie Whittakers. I just was, I think my favorite had to be the little girl that couldn't be older than eight, dressed as Jodie Whittaker. I already mentioned the Delga Delgado Master, but there was not just a Cyberman, a Bill Potts Cyberman, because yes, I asked. And of course, with every good cosplay, there are mechanicals. There were the Dalek, which I'm not sure if that was the same Dalek that was the Tiki Dalek, but there was also a Tiki Dalek. There was a Cybermat, and there were quite a few canines. Because of the guests that were there, there were, of course, a lot of different aces and a lot of different sills. They had, they, I saw a baby Peter Capaldi, 
which was adorable as all get out. And of course, cosplay that wasn't necessarily Doctor Who related. Everything from Peggy Carter to Groot <laughs> to just twists on Doctor Who. Quite a few TARDIS dresses. There was a Tom Baker scarf dress. The winner, one of the winners of the masquerade include a, included a mother and daughter weeping angel pair, which apparently it was the daughter's choice to go as the weeping angels. And the mother had these contacts that whitened out her eyes, which made the, which just made the cosplay. And of course, with all good cons, there's merch. I, of course, had to add to my button collection, including a complete set of the 8-bit Doctor's buttons, as well as a Jodie Whittaker one. With Big Finish being there, of course, I had to buy a couple of the Big Finish audio. And since this was one of the first times I managed to go to a con where I actually had some spending cash, I also managed to bid and win some stuff on the charity auction. Everything from a novelization of The Pirate Planet by Douglas Adams, which is, of course, the last book or last episode of that Key to Time series, to some of the new adventure books signed, to this glorious piece of time travel fan art that has Peter Capaldi's Doctor, has Bill and Ted, Quantum Leap, and a couple other ones. It's gorgeous. The best part of the charity auction, though, is because I had a little bit of spending cash, they were trying to raise some extra money. I jokingly said, I'll up my bid on something, I want to say by 30 more dollars, if I could get a plug for my podcast from Chase Masterson. Now, I'm a journalist. Technically, I'm not supposed to pay for talent, but it was for a good cause. After the auction was done... Jay sat down for me for a good five, ten minutes and gave me this. Hi, I'm Chase Masterson from Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Big Finish Vienna. And I'm geeky about social justice, and I am not afraid to say it. I know that we deserve to live in a world that is inclusive and has diversity and has inclusion incredible respect for every person's right to be exactly who they are or who they want to be as long as they don't hurt anybody so join me and join us in geeking out on making the world a better place I founded pop culture hero coalition for that very same reason um, Pop Culture Hero Coalition is the first ever organization to make a stand against bullying, racism, misogyny, LGBTQIA bullying, cyberbullying, and other forms of hate using pop culture stories like Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, and all that. We, you know, we teach kids, hey, be Wonder Woman, be Batman, stand up for people who need our help. And so I invite you to be one of those people. Be a superhero. And our online handle twitter instagram and facebook is at superhero irl so i hope that you will um follow us come aboard support us in any way you can and thanks for making the world a better place you are geeky. oh and i'm geeking out with angie fiedler sutton thank you now i mentioned the fact that this was one of the first cons that I could actually afford spending money on. 
That included some of the extras, including photos and autographs. Now, I didn't, I'm actually not a huge fan of photo sessions. When I was in London in 2014, I attended a very smallish convention and Colin Baker was there as, and I got my photo with him and I just felt awkward doing it. So I had waffled as to whether or not I was going to get a photo and if so, which one I was going to get. I did end up getting a photo of myself with Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred, which is now the header image of my Facebook page. And of course, I got that photo autographed by both of them. I ended up choosing that one because, as I mentioned to Sophie Aldred when I got her autograph, while Tom Baker was my first doctor, and you never forget your first doctor, Sill's doctor was the first time it hit me what you could do with a character and how you could change a show but still keep it true and Andrew Cartmel who was also there and I'll talk about him in a little bit his quote-unquote master plan that he had for Ace and the Doctor should had the series not been canceled where I could see that was possibly going I found exciting I could it just it showed what storytelling could do And so when I saw that you could get a photo with the both of them and that they were both going to be doing autographs, I had to do that. With regards to some of the other other autographs, I, of course, had to get Gemma Redgrave's autograph for my partner because, like I said, she's a huge fan of Kate Stewart. Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury were both there. And, of course, I had to get both of their autographs. With Fraser, I had to ask him a question. I mentioned earlier that I was, a, for a very brief time, a member of the St. Louis CIA fan club. I remember in the late 80s that he had come to some sort of, uh, some sort of like local con that they did. This was not something I had attended, but they talked about it in their newsletter. And they made him an honorary member of the St. Louis CIA. They did a fundraiser where they actually knitted a scarf that was long enough to go from one end of the St. Louis Arch to the other. And so when I got my autograph, I was like, this is kind of a weird question, but I have to ask, do you know if you're still a member of the St. Louis CIA? To which, of course, he had to jokingly say, well, they haven't kicked me out yet, as far as I know. (laughs) The final autograph I got was Terry Malloy, who was Davros. Now, the reason I got him was one of the other things I managed to purchase that Galfrey one does is an evening guest reception where they break you up into groups and they have several of the guests where they go around and you get like 10 minutes or 15 minutes with each guest for my evening reception. I got Sophie Aldred, Sylvester McCoy, John Davey, who is kind of a, who's a monster actor. He's been a cyberman. He's been an angel. He's been like, you name a monster on new who he's probably been it. Uh, You got Jessica Martin, who played Mags in the old series, Terry Malloy from Davros, and Dee Sadler, who played Flower Child. This evening reception was fascinating. One of the people I was sitting with was dressed as Mags. So even though they said no photos, Jessica herself was like, I need this photo. Talking to Sophie Aldred with her, uh, her son was there, and we talked a little bit about musicals and whatnot. Uh, Sylvester McCoy... Talk mostly about gun control because this was shortly after the Parkland shooting. Now, the, uh, in all honesty, it was the inner, it was talking to John Davy. I found well, not the most fascinating. That was Sophie, but 
he was the definitely the second most fascinating because hearing kind of that's not exactly a role you want to do necessarily when you get into acting you want the named parts you want to become famous and so to hear his story of kind of how he fell into it and how he's is okay with that was interesting to hear from an actor's perspective also hearing some of the horror stories of some of the things he's had to go through with regards to his makeup and costumes was a bit much as well Gallifrey one also does these things called coffee clutch with several of the guests you can sign up for as many as you want but they usually only assign you one unfortunately i was unable to get in the one with jane espenson it was closed even before i had a chance to fill out the form but i saw that one of the ones was andrew cartmel now i was lucky enough to meet him back in 2014 at that con and get his book and get it autographed then but i was still figured this would might be a good chance to kind of get in and and talk to him a little bit it was neat hearing his writing process and i i asked him if he has a different approach depending on whether he's writing original work or if he's writing something based on an existing material i.e doctor who or his own stuff and he said that it's about the same he's also working on a couple of plays so i you know asked him about I mean, yes, they're both scripts, but they are different mediums. So I was like, I wanted to know the difference for him in terms of writing for the stage versus writing for the screen. Of course, writing for the stage for him, he prefers because he has much more control as the writers. The playwright is sacrosanct in theater, and I know that myself. Whereas in television, it's like, there's a writer? (laughs) I highly enjoyed myself, even though I didn't have any coffee at the coffee clutch. Finally... My Stephen Moffat story, which, yes, I have one. Waiting for the coffee clutch, I was in line with this guy who is actually one of the alternates. And we were talking, and I can't remember how we got on the topic, but we got to talking about shows we are currently watching. Now, this was shortly after I had written the review of The Good Place for F-Bomb, linked in my notes. And I was talking about how much I enjoyed The Good Place, and I was starting to go into a little bit why, when I hear out of the corner of my ear, great show, and I turn, and as I see, it's Stephen Bloody Moffat walking past. Now, as I mentioned, my feelings for him are not the best at this moment. Now, if I was interviewing him, we would have a probably knockdown, teardown fight, but I also respect that other people do like him, so I didn't want to make any waves. However, it's Stephen Moffat. So, of course, I lean over as he's hurrying to his next event, and I say, I'm sorry, who are you? To which he, of course, responded, I have no idea. (laughs) Finally, just my review of the con overall. As I mentioned... I was a little nervous going into this, not only because it's hard for me to meet people when I'm by myself, although I do do it and I've learned how to do that. I still am, you know, uncomfortable doing that, but also because my feelings for the show are so complicated and that I'm not such a huge fan of Stephen Moffat knowing he was going to be there. The few times I had conversations about him, it was obviously with someone who was a fan. And so I felt uncomfortable bringing up 
my many, many issues with him because I didn't want to start a fight. I also found it difficult doing a con by myself with my partner at work. It's hard to enjoy something when you're by yourself, even when you do enjoy time by yourself. So in the end, there were quite a few times over the weekend where I just felt isolated and felt out of my element. But I don't know how much of that was just me versus the con. Would I go again? I mentioned that tickets were on sale and already sold out. I already have two. And yes, I said two. My partner is going to ask off for the weekend so we can go together. The main reason I'm going again is because it's their 30th year and they have mentioned more than once that they have quite the plans for this 30th anniversary. And now it's time for Angie Geeks Out. This month is yet another podcast that I'm going to geek out. But that's okay. It's a podcast about podcasts, sort of. The Onion, in its great wisdom, has come out with A Very Fatal Murder, an obvious parody of Serial, which I know even though I've never seen an episode of Serial. It is a six-episode season that was launched in early February. Each episode is maybe about 10 minutes, give or take, so the whole thing runs a little over an hour. And it is a gem from beginning to end. If you're familiar with the Netflix series American Vandal, which is a parody of the true crime television series, it's basically the same kind of concept. The best part of this one, though, is that it's not only sends up serial, it sends up podcasts to the point where it even has fake ads for the various products that if you listen to even a smidgen of podcasts, you're familiar with. Everything from BoxBox, a subscription service where they send you a box every month, to a twist on Blue Apron. I found that actually much more entertaining than the actual murder that we're investigating. If you like humor and you like podcasts, you definitely want to check this out. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Chase Masterson for her sort of plug. And thanks to all the people I interacted with at Gallifrey One. I did enjoy myself. Next up, a long delayed interview from 2014 when I wanted to start a series where I interviewed women in the nerdy community called Geek Girls. For this first one, it's going to be straight from 2014 with edited. I've got a few others that we're going to be revisiting and tweaking, but this will be the first one. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picknickin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.